mean, I really believe that it is impossible to be a good cook if you don't have a generous soul. And to me, generosity is the most important characteristic of people. No time for Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the fifth season of Camille's Demi Hour. This is a half-hour show dedicated to sharing the Epicurean life and personal stories from Nantucket and beyond. Cheers. Good afternoon. This is Camille Broderick, host of Camille's Demi Hour, and I am very lucky and honored to have an culinary icon in the studio today. Her name is Ruth Reichel. Welcome, Ruth. How are you today? Um, I'm very happy to be here. Well, I would love for you to talk freely and tell us your stories, your favorite recipes, everything that you feel is exciting you today in the culinary world. I'd love to start with your first food memories. Uh, you grew up in Greenwich Village or in New York City? I, I did. I grew up in Greenwich Village, and I have to say, my first food memories are not uh, wonderful. My mother was truly the world's worst cook. And my first food memory is having my mother give me something to eat. I was in a, I was in a high chair, so I was less than two. And she put something in my mouth, and it was so horrible, I spat it out. And my mother looked at me, and she put a spoon in put a spoonful of it in her own mouth. And then she looked at me and she said, what's wrong with you? This is delicious. And I knew from that very moment that I was in trouble, that this woman did not taste the same things that I tasted. <laughs> Another really early memory is watching my mother go through the refrigerator, scraping the blue stuff off the top and saying, oh, a little mold never hurt anyone. And so I, very, I, I did two things. I mean, it's like, it was like she had trained me to be a restaurant critic because I learned to take a tiny little taste of everything my mother made and really taste it before swallowing to see if it was going to kill me. And then as, you know, as soon as I could walk, I started cooking. I pushed her away from the, from the stove and thought, you know, if I'm going to survive, I better cook. And you know, I, I really believe that cooking is our most natural activity as humans. I mean, cooking is what made us human. It's the difference between us and other animals. We cook, they don't. And, you know, there's also a very good argument that learning to cook, we were able to get many more calories, and that's what gave us our big brains. So it, it is literally what made us human. But I think it's, it's our most natural activity. And Well, outside of growing up needing to cook and, and having to do it for yourself, you ended up relocating to the West Coast and getting involved in becoming a co-owner of a restaurant. Tell me about that time in your life and how that became a profession. Well, I mean, actually, before I even moved to the West Coast, I, I have a master's in history of art, and I really did think that I would get a job at a museum. I mean, I thought I would walk into the Muse Museum of Modern Art and they would say, oh, yes, we need a new curator of contemporary sculpture. And, of course, all anybody said to me was, how fast can you type and we were living in a loft on the Lower East Side, and all our friends kept coming through and staying with us. And the Lower East Side at that point was a wonderful culinary place. I mean, you still had the old Jewish places. You had the 
Italian restaurants. You had Chinatown. And so I would wander around collecting recipes. And one day somebody looked at me and said, you know, you're such a good cook. Why don't you write a cookbook? Well, of course, today, if you said that to someone, they'd say, oh, yeah, right. But, you know, in 1971, um, I actually went to an editor and said, you know, I have an idea for writing a cookbook. And, you know, she said, well, you know, what you should do is write a sample chapter and an outline. And, you know, if you bring it to me, I'll tell you where to take it. And I did that, and I took it to her, and, you know, she called me a week later and said, we'll publish it. So I wrote a cookbook when I was 22. And then we decided to move to Berkeley, New York. We're living in New York was really rough in those years. And we moved to Berkeley, and so I had loved writing, and I never thought that, oh, I would write about food, and I did open a restaurant with a bunch of people. But one of my editors ate dinner in my restaurant. But this editor came in and said, have you ever thought about becoming a restaurant critic? And I have to tell you that my first thought wasn't, oh, this is going to be a new profession. My first thought was, free meals. They're going to send us out to restaurants. (laughs) I mean, my husband and I had no money. We were living in a commune. We were very poor. And, you know, it was just thrilling, the notion of going out to eat in fancy restaurants. And I became the restaurant critic of New West, which was this sister publication of New York Magazine. And they got a little cult following. And it was a great, I mean, I, I really, I did it for six years. And I really learned on the job. You know, I, I really got to eat in you know, great restaurants. And, you know, this is in the 70s when, as a restaurant critic, you didn't have to know that much. I mean, it's not like today when you have a very sophisticated public. I didn't have that. And so, um, and I also got to, a magazine sent me to China. So I got to learn about Chinese food. And then I decided I wanted to know Thai food. And I got a bunch of, um, assignments from various food magazines and went to Thailand and Japan to, you know, really train myself in those cuisines. And um, so, you know, I was very lucky to have this extraordinary education in food. And then I got a call from the LA Times saying, we want you to come be our restaurant. <laughs> and then you got to go to the New York Times, and that was close to 13 years of your life as a critic. Was that a place where you found a new writing voice, like you said, and emerged into something new? I was I was at the L.A. Times for 10 years. So I, at that point, but at the time that I got called to become the restaurant critic of the New York Times, I'd already been been a restaurant critic for 16 years. And I get this call from the, from the New York Times, you know, saying, will you come be our critic? And I almost instantly learned that every restaurant in New York had a picture of me, a huge picture of me with wanted written across the, the bottom. And that they were offering anybody who worked there a bounty if they spotted me. And I really believe that people don't go out just to eat. They go out for an experience. And the experience is a big part of what you as a critic need to write about. And if they're putting on, rolling out the red carpet for you, you aren't experiencing what your readers are going to experience. Exactly. And so... I decided that if I was going to be, if they knew who I was, I was going to have to become someone else. And right as I got to New York, I called one of my mother's best friends, who was a an acting coach, and I said, where do I go buy a wig? I need to buy a wig. And Claudia said, no, 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 no. 
if you're going to become the restaurant critic of the New York Times, you can't just put on a wig and a pair of glasses and think <laughs> that's good enough. You've got to really do it. And she said, I'm coming right over. And she came over and she just said, you know, who, do, who are you going to be? And I just pulled a name out of the air. I said, Molly Hollis. And she said, who is Molly? What, do, what does her husband do? And before she let me go out, I had, I knew everything about this woman. <laughs> And um, I had gotten credit cards in her name, and she had her own jewelry. And You're a for, character in your own books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And for one of my first reviews, I reviewed Le Cirque, um, which people had always said as, when I was the restaurant critic of the Los Angeles Times, I would come to New York and people would say, let's go to Le Cirque. And I would say, no, no, there's no point in going there. I'm not known there. I mean, I knew, everybody knew it was one of those restaurants that if they knew you, it was a much better experience. So I went many times as Molly Hollis and was treated like dirt. On one memorable occasion, I asked for the wine list, which is a tome there, which takes at least half an hour to read through. And a maitre d' came and snatched it away after a minute and said, I need that. I need that wine list. <laughs> gave it to a man three tables over in my fury. And for my final visit, I said, you know, I'm not going to make the reservation in my own name, but I'm not going to go in disguise, and I'm sure they'll recognize me. And I went with my nephew, and he made the reservation, and he said, you know, I could only get a 945 reservation. And I said, well, let's go at 8 o'clock and see what happens. So Johnny and I go at 8, and there are all these people milling around, moaning about the fact that they've been waiting for their table, and why isn't it ready? And the owner spots me instantly when we walk in. And he parts this crowd like the Red Sea, and he takes my hand, and he leads me forward and says, the King of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. <laughs> and he leads the two of us to a foretop and then says, can we make a meal for you? And they prance around the table. There's white truffles and black truffles and caviar and champagne. And I said to Johnny... Oh, yeah, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar. And Johnny turns around and he looks at the bar and he says, that is the king of Spain <laughs> waiting at the bar. So I wrote this review. It was, one of my, it was one of my very first reviews at the New York Times. And I wrote the review in two takes. One, what happened to Molly Hollis, and one, what happened to the restaurant critic of the New York Times. And were there different stars? How did uh, um, how was well, that received? They, I had wanted to do it in his two diff, totally separate reviews with different stars, and the Times wouldn't let me do that. They yeah. said, "No, no, you have to, you have to make up your mind about how many stars." So it had been, you know, one of five four-star restaurants in New York, yeah. and it really didn't matter whether I gave it, you know, one star or three stars, as long as I took a star away, that was the big noise, right. that it wasn't going to be a four-star restaurant anymore. But that was a powerful position. And after that, you worked your way to more publishing, and you transferred into Gourmet Magazine. Was that a direct transfer? You became the editor of Gourmet Magazine? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I <clears throat> had said to my agent was, you know, it's very hard to leave being the restaurant critic of the New York Times. It's, it's, it's such, I mean, people 
you know, people say things like, I read you religiously. It's a very public, powerful position. And I said, I don't, you know, I, I have to come up with an exit strategy. I don't know what that strategy will be. And my predecessor had done it not very gracefully. So when Gourmet Magazine asked I me, mean, they just out of the blue called me and said, we want you to be, we want you to edit the magazine. And, you know, I looked at them and said, you know, are you crazy? I, I, can't, I can't edit a magazine. I'm, I'm a writer. Um, but it was very tempting because I'd been doing, at this point now, I had been reviewing restaurants for 20-some years, and I really felt like it was time for me to move on. And so I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. Um, I mean, I really believe that one of the ways you stay young is by doing things you don't know how to do. Mm. So I went and became the editor of Gourmet Magazine. If you're just tuning in, this is Camille Broder, host of Camille's Demi Hour, and we have Ruth Reichel on the show today. She's a winner of six James Beard Awards, was a, the restaurant critic at the LA Times and New York Times, and also the editor-in-chief at Gourmet Magazine, quite the resume, and it's a thrill and an honor to have her here. And we were just talking about her transition into Gourmet Magazine and leaving the powerful and infamous role as the New York Times restaurant critic, which is a religion. People pick up the paper on a Wednesday, open that, open that food section, and you do have a cult following. How was the transition to become an editor? How was that? Did you enjoy the job? Oh, my God. It was the most fun job I've ever had. Um, I mean, the writers, the the tasting, the food uh, in the test kitchen, a little bit of everything. I mean, I was working with extraordinary people and writing is very lonely and being a restaurant critic is kind of, I mean, you sit at your desk um, and I'm a very social person and the collaborative nature of magazines is a joy. And I sort of also felt, I mean, at that point, I had been writing about food at the point that I took over. I mean, I've been writing about food for 35 years. I had, you know, all this knowledge under my belt. And then I get to work with, you know, all these people who are as passionate about food as I am. And it was just pure joy. It really was. Um, And I really felt that And when I took the job, I said to them that it was 1999 and that it was really time for someone to do a food magazine that dealt with more than just recipes and restaurants, fancy places to travel, that there was a huge revolution in food and that it was time for a food magazine to tackle serious subjects, to talk about where our food came from, get the best writers and investigative people, and to really take a much bigger bite out of the world than any of the food magazines were then taking. We enormously expanded what a food magazine thought was its subject. I mean, my feeling was, is that every writer has at least one great food story in them. So mm-hmm. we just all went to, you know, our favorite writers and said, you know, we want you to write for us. You know, what, what interests you? And unfortunately, Condé Nast had canceled Gourmet, and that was the oldest food magazine in the country, and still is, l- long-running. Is that is that right? When Gourmet closed, it was almost 70 years old. Wow. No other food magazine has that many years under its belt. And 
you know, there's still not a day of my life goes by that someone doesn't come up to me and say how much they miss the magazine. I'm um, one of them, and my mother. <laughs> I mean, you know, the magazine really crept into people's lives, and none of us can believe that Condé Nast chose to close it. Is it still a mystery to you? No, I mean, I, I, I understand why, I, I, but I, I can't quite forgive it. <laughs> Well, now you've written cookbooks since then, and you have talked about the kitchen as a place for real reflection and a place where you feel the most at home and, and balanced. Talk about the book, your cookbook that you wrote right afterwards. I did two things after Gourmet Clothes. I mean, the first thing was I had always said, because I'd written all these memoirs, said, I, you know, I always wanted to write a novel. And so I said, if I didn't have a day job, I would write a novel. So the first thing I did was tackle a novel, um, delicious. Right after the magazine closed, I was so devastated, and I kept saying, I've got to write this novel, I've got to write this novel, but what I found myself doing was just vanishing into the kitchen, because it is my, my safe place, and I really came to understand that, for me, the secret to life is learning to find joy in ordinary things. And for me, so many of those things are in the kitchen. really grounded myself by baking bread and that pleasure you get in kneading the dough and smelling the wild yeasts in the air, paying attention to the scents and the sensory feelings that you that you participate in in the kitchen. It's a kind of grace for me, and it's a way of recognizing how happy I am to be alive. Well, you're quoted to say cooking is very central and that if you didn't have cooking, you honestly don't know what you would do. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, when I don't know what to do with myself, I go into the kitchen and I cook. You also love hosting people, and you've said how important that is to share yourself and to open your doors to people. I think sharing that kitchen experience and sharing that is a very intimate moment and that's how you get to know people too. I really believe that and I know you do too. I, I do <laughs> and you know I, I have this living room, kitchen, dining room, it's one huge room mm -hmm. so when I cook you know I, I, everybody is there with me and I can just sort of you know shove potatoes across the counter and say here peel these. You know one of the reasons that I really wanted to stop being a restaurant critic was I was increasingly concerned by how much private time we spend in public spaces. And I think there's something very different about saying to people, meet me in a restaurant. It's very safe than saying, come to my house. When you're saying, come to my house, you're opening yourself up to people so they can see, you know, maybe your cats walk on the counters, maybe your children misbehave. You're allowing a kind of vulnerability, and that's what friendship comes from. Friendship does not come out of a safe place of, let's meet someplace neutral where you're never going to see my flaws. Inviting people into your home is risking that maybe the meal isn't going to be perfect. You know, I mean, we all make a bad meal, and sometimes we make it when friends come over, and sometimes we make it for ourselves. To risk, you know, feeding someone that something isn't perfect is to say, you know, this is who I am. Love me for my faults as much as things that I'm good at. Risk is important, and vulnerability is important, and that's what comes 
from you know letting people into your house, inviting them in, and and honestly, going to a restaurant is a shortcut. I mean, prepping, making dinner for a group of people, preparing, entertaining is it's work. It takes more time and effort, and that also I feel is a reflection of someone if they're doing that for someone else. I mean, I really believe that it is impossible to be a good cook if you don't have a generous soul. And to me, generosity is the most important characteristic of people. And wow. of chefs, you are correct. I think a lot of great chefs feel that way. They, they, they give, give, give. They do. They do. And I mean, it's one of the reasons I love the food world. I mean, I'm so proud of what so many chefs are doing today. I mean, they, you know, they've really taken on the notion of, you know, ending hunger, feeding children. Um, you know, there's a kind of responsibility that comes with being a chef that this generation of chefs have shouldered in a way that just makes me so proud. What else are you surprised with in the food scene today? Well, I I am thrilled by what is happening with young people um, for so many reasons. I mean, one is I grew up in a generation when cooking was women's work. My son is 28, and for his generation, you know, the guys cook as much as the girls do. I mean, they, they share cooking. Um, it is absolutely not just for women anymore. And this generation also really understands how important their food choices are. You know, they understand that eating is an ethical act and that they can have a real impact on the world depending on how they eat. It gives me real hope for the future. And you were recently here on island. Uh uh, you were here for the book festival. Uh, what was you, this? Was your first trip to Nantucket, and it, it what did was you, indeed. what did you think, and where did you go to eat? Well, you know, most of the event. Mo- I mean, somehow I ended up, you know, eating at the venues that were hosting events. Um, the one meal that I, the one that really thrilled me. I went to sales. I, I have to say, I, I I am addicted to. Um, fried clams. So good, fried clams. Oh, with the belly. Oh, yeah. Yes, and so I was lucky enough to have some local people take me to sales, and it was just, I was in heaven. Absolute heaven. (laughs) And the island, did it speak to you? You live in upstate New York. It's a beautiful nature there as well here. The island is just, I mean, you know, how how lucky you all are to live there. (laughs) It is, it is really spectacular. I can't wait to come back. Well, great. So what's the next thing on, on the docket? Do you want to continue doing novels, more cookbooks? I, I have a five-book deal with Random House, so I am finishing up the gourmet memoir, and then I'm going to write two more novels. Well, thank you, Ruth. Uh, we were speaking with Ruth Reichel, the famous editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, New York Times restaurant critic as well as the LA Times and winner of six James Beard Awards. It was an honor to have you on the show today and to be a part of the Nantucket community. Thank you so much, Ruth. Well, this was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Camille's Demi Hour. Tune in every weekend through Columbus Day, Saturdays at 10.30 a.m. and Sundays at 11.30. If you'd like to hear the full episodes, you can find me on iTunes. Cheers. Oh, yeah. Come on.